Welcome back to Yang Daily. I'll be your host, Alex Cheney, bringing you all the Yang news you need to live your life right. Boy, have we got some beefy items today. I was planning to include more, but it turned into more of an in-depth episode on a couple of these. They're well worth the time. Let's get into it. Quick shout out to our Tier 3 patrons, Shay Meehan and Nathan Stankowski, as well as all our other patrons. You keep us all informed and engaged. If any of you out there want to join these advocates of Humanity First and independent journalism, head on over to patreon.com slash yangdaily. It would only take a couple of bucks a month from each listener to keep this podcast and community going and growing into the future. Now on to the news. First off, happy Yangiversary. That's right, it's Andrew's birthday. Well, okay, it was yesterday actually. Close enough. So give thanks to Yang seniors for their donation to the world. Wouldn't have been the same without Andrew. He's one of those rare individuals who not only chooses to put the good of humanity over personal enrichment, but also is effective at doing so. I know that I would be in a worse mental place if he'd been satisfied with raking in money as a corporate lawyer, and certainly UBI and other political movements would have missed out. If you're interested, he also wrote a brief essay on some birthday thoughts, nothing of particular importance, but he asks that if you choose to celebrate, doing something nice for someone or donating to forward party are Yang-approved methods. Alright, it's time for an Omicron update, as there have been some significant studies since our last, and unlike all previous updates, this one is actually good news. I will preface what follows with the disclaimer that none of these studies have yet been peer-reviewed, so there is a chance they contain substantial flaws in methodology or reporting that haven't been caught yet. That said, given the time-sensitive nature of the pandemic and the constantly evolving threat, some uncertainty must be balanced against the risk of prolonged ignorance. So that said, here is what we think we know. A study was recently performed in California with a diverse sample of 70,000 asymptomatic cases who tested positive for COVID. 75 of those were identified as having Omicron, and the rest had Delta. Their outcomes were then tracked. 1.3% of the Delta cases ended up being hospitalized, versus only half a percent of Omicron, meaning Omicron symptoms appeared to be 60% less severe than Delta. Even better, Omicron was 98% less likely to result in death as only one Omicron patient died, versus 14 Delta, even though there were three times as many Omicron cases. That actually brings the death rate down to 0.00002%, which coincidentally almost exactly matches the CDC's posted mortality rate for the flu. You know what this means. Trump was right all along when he said COVID is just like the flu. He was just you know, right at the wrong time. Clearly clairvoyant and confusing present with future. It's the only reasonable explanation. Seriously, though, this is really, really good news. Although, to be honest, Trump wouldn't even be correct today as Omicron is still far more infectious than the flu, so it does do more damage overall. But this level of severity is far more manageable than previous strains and more reasonable a risk to live with. As we discussed before, given the stupidity and selfishness of humanity, the only realistic end to the pandemic at this point would be a less severe strain becoming dominant. While most laymen think about viruses as malicious creatures that want to kill us, the reality is they are simply organisms guided by nothing more than the same principle as all other living things, survival of the fittest, reproductive evolution. Whatever genes help the virus reproduce more are the ones that will become dominant in future generations. One path for that is getting better at infecting hosts. That one's not so great for us. But the other path is to become less lethal 
because dead hosts are terrible at infecting others and at producing more virus. Causing more symptoms like coughing can help it spread and reproduce better, but if it causes the host to die, that reduces the time that the host can spread it for. So for evolution, it's a delicate balancing act. We have certainly seen COVID evolve to be more infectious. Now, fortunately, it's doing so while also becoming less lethal. There's no guarantee that future strains will be as benign, but it is nice to have a reprieve at the very least. Additional details from the study were that none of the Omicron cases needed ventilation versus 11 of the Delta cases, and that Omicron hospital stays were 70% shorter. Now, remember, this study is not yet peer-reviewed, but from the abstract, the methodology seems sound, and a couple other preprint studies have found similar results, though varying pretty widely in range. A study by the World Health Organization found 20% reduced risk of hospitalization from Omicron for those infected for the first time, and 55% reduced risk for those previously infected by earlier COVID strains. Another study by the National Institute for Communicable Diseases found Omicron to be 70% less severe. And recent animal testing has found that, at least in rodents, this is because Omicron does less damage to the lungs. So, still pinning down the numbers, but consensus so far is that Omicron is far more infectious, but far less dangerous once you have it. Still good to do what you can to protect the vulnerable by vaccinating and masking at large gatherings, at least for now. But it is good news. On a less uplifting note, it appears that gerrymandering has another feather in its quiver, which I had not previously heard of. It's called prison gerrymandering. Some quick background for those not familiar. The census tallies up how many people live in each part of the country. Those numbers are then used, among other things, in the redistricting process, which divides each state into districts, each of which is supposed to be roughly equal in population, and each gets a vote in federal and state elections. Gerrymandering, of course, is when the district lines are drawn so as to swing as many districts as possible to one party. Since plurality voting is used in this instead of proportional, it doesn't matter if the district is won by a little or a lot, just whether it's won. So the trick is to use the lines to split voters so that your side barely wins a bunch of districts, while shoving as many of the opposing votes as possible into a couple of throwaway districts, allowing you to win a majority of districts even if you did not get a majority of the individual votes. Here is where prison gerrymandering comes in. The census counts incarcerated people as being residents of the district that they are imprisoned in rather than where they lived before. Then, some states use those numbers for redistricting, meaning that the prison districts get their population supplemented by residents who cannot vote, unfairly amplifying the impact of the district's residents who can vote. Essentially, it transfers voting power from prisoners' home districts to the prison districts. And the kicker is, most prisons are in rural Republican districts, meaning the voting power is transferred from Democrats to Republicans. Texas's Tennessee colony, for example, was recorded as having 16,000 residents, except less than a quarter of those are free residents who are free to vote. At the federal level, 76% of prison districts are represented by a Republican. Incidentally, this also skews conservative districts as being more racially diverse than they actually are. Best analysis finds that almost a quarter of Texas House districts are significantly enough affected by prison gerrymandering that they would need to be redrawn. 
Many states have made changes over the past decade to how they count prisoners, but the parties are more interested in winning than governing, so the GOP have no interest in reforming this practice in places like Texas, where 250,000 residents were incarcerated in the last census. The state Congress would need to change the process, but that process is keeping them in power, regardless of what voters want, so it's likely that it will come down to a number of pending lawsuits, if not citizens' initiatives. Other fixes would be to change the census to record prior residents, or to give prisoners back their constitutional right to vote. Finally, Yang and Open Primaries had their virtual event joined by hundreds of live viewers. You can check out the link below for a recording of that. Yang also linked to studentsforop.org, which, as the domain suggests, is an organization of students advocating for open primaries, not, as gamers may have interpreted, students who are overpowered. Though you could argue the former makes them the latter. If you're a student, join the crew. Either way, spread it around. And that'll do for today's Yang Daily. Bookmark and share the Omicron thread, the prison gerrymandering thread, and students for open primaries. Flood Congress with calls, tweets, faxes, and letters using the easy volunteer contacts below. If you need help, consult the Income Movement Aid Database, the Mission Asset Fund, or United Way. And don't forget to Yang Daily.